Reading from Nahum 1, verses 7 to 13. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realms of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh has one come forth. Who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans? This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. May the Lord add his blessings to this reading. Thanks, Sandra. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's, it's been quite a long service, so if you need to stand up and dance or shake, oh, you're not allowed to dance, but if you just shake or something, uh, feel free to. Uh, as I said earlier, the next four weeks, we're going to finish off uh, what I've been doing over two years, really, and filling in some gaps with uh, the Minor Prophets. And today we're in the book of Nahum, as you can imagine. So uh, it's mainly, I'm, I'm going to talk mainly about Nineveh. Um, and we're going to go back to Jonah as well, so I'm not really going to cover all of Nahum, and I'm really going to try to condense it, to be honest, uh, uh, for all your benefit. So, uh, so let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll open up the word and have a good look. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Uh, we come to it with great confidence, knowing it is the double-edged sword of the Holy Spirit, that we can be convict- convicted, convinced, we can be challenged, we can be renewed, we can be... Are lifted up and be brought to a place of worship. We can be encouraged. We can be strengthened. All those human realities, Lord, comes as we interact with your word. Why? Because it is your word and you are speaking to us. So help us to come to it in great confidence now, Lord, as we consider Nineveh and all that you did in that uh, city's uh, being. And so, Father God, bless us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think most of you would remember back to 2008 and the global financial crisis. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you suffered during that time uh, financially, but Australia was somewhat uh, kept at length from it. We weren't too bad. We got, a lot of, uh, we got a lot of building programs in our schools out of it, a lot of halls and libraries and things like that. But over in America, they suffered terribly. And one of the reasons for that uh, is because of leading up to that time, and I'm not going to give you a financial lecture. I know you, you're all sitting there going, oh, you're from a finance background. Here we go. I'm just going to... But, uh, but one of the... Re- I could talk for hours on this. But one of the reasons is that leading up to that, the government over there reduced regulations for people to have to prove they could afford to pay back their home loans. So if they went to a lender, the lender could say, well, we'll give you a higher interest rate if you just sign this form uh, to say that you can... You can pay it back. They didn't have to get any foundational documents. They didn't have to actually prove it. And what happened is as the economy started shaking, um, 
if interest rates went up or if people came in unemployment, uh, they come into financial distress and they had no wiggle room in their mortgages. So there was no cash in the bank because they were paying everything to their mortgages. They could barely afford it because they'd basically signed all their money over to this mortgage. And so whenever uh, the bank, uh, whenever something happened, they couldn't afford it. And so things started becoming unraveled. And there's a lot more to it into how mortgages are securitized and, uh, and sold on the markets and things like that. But effectively, uh, people started defaulting on their mortgages and it was like a, a, a spiral that just started happening. And as more people did this, uh, banks began foreclosing on their homes, which means they take them back and say, well, we own that now, get out. And then they would sell them on the market to pay off the loan. But as more and more, in fact, over millions of homes started coming on the market, the price of houses dropped 30%. And so the, the banks couldn't pay off the loans, which means they couldn't meet their debt. And the government started bailing them out with billions of dollars. So there was this revolving problem. Now, during that time, people started being encouraged to go to their banks and asking for forbearance. Now, forbearance is when, okay, you can foreclose on me now, but could you just delay that? Could you just push that out for a while to help me get on my feet so I can pay you back, so that I can get back into the right uh, place with you and pay it all back or push my loan out for a longer period? See, forbearance is a patient endurance, it's, uh, it's the one that has all the power or the authority over you being able to determine whether they're going to punish you now or allow you to be punished later, if you like. And that's effectively uh, what was happening uh, over in America. And you can still do it now. You can go to your bank and ask for forbearance. And, uh, and they can issue you a delayed foreclosure. They delay uh, the punishment upon you. See, forbearance is a patient endurance and it's there to help you get your life in order and meet your obligations. It abstains from enforcing a right and in this case, enforcing a right to take back your home. And today as we come into Nahum, we're actually encountering uh, God's forbearance upon Nineveh, his patient endurance as he has been delaying enforcing his right upon them of punishing them for their wickedness. See, God is a God of patient endurance, of forbearance. And it's an important part of how we understand how God uh, is able uh, to allow suffering to happen in the world or evil to continue. He's a God of forbearance. So if you do have your Bibles, I won't have anything behind me today, sorry, but if you do have your Bibles, open them up to Nahum uh, verse 1. And it just simply says, A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. So Nahum was from Elkosh, which was in Judah, the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. And he was a prophet to God's people. And, he was a, uh, and usually the prophets, and most of the prophets in the, in the Old Testament, you'll see they're addressed to God's people. But this is specifically concerning Nineveh. And just to give you a brief overview, chapter 1 says, The Lord's forbearance with Nineveh has come to an end. He is saying, Nineveh, enough is enough. I will not delay 
punishment anymore. And then in chapter 2 and 3, we're told the Lord's punishment upon Nineveh, Nineveh will be indefensible. You cannot stand up against it. Once God forecloses on his right to punish, he will. And just to give you uh, the insight into just how fierce the Assyrians were, uh, they were they were a very fierce people, really thirsty to conquer many nations, and they were enemies against God's people, and particularly against God. When they came in, they demanded that people worship other gods. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11 says this, From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. See, they were intentional in how they were plotting evil, against God's people. And then in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we're told this, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution. See, Assyria would get the nation, enslave them, so they would become a vassal nation, have to basically pay a lot of taxes, but then they would introduce their gods and have that nation worship the gods. And this is what uh, was happening uh, in Israel at the time. And what we're seeing here is that God is angry. It's a righteous anger. Enough is enough. His forbearance has come to an end when it comes to Nineveh. But see, Nahum isn't the only prophet concerned with Nineveh. Who else? Jonah. If you remember, Jonah and the big fish... Uh, that's how it's put in our Bible at home at the moment. But Jonah and the big fish. Uh, so why was Jonah swallowed up by a big fish at the command of God and spat out three days later? Because he wouldn't go to Nineveh and preach repentance to them. He refused. Why? Because he knew just how evil that city was. And he said, why should they be saved? And so here we've got this it, it, it seems like it's a it's a it's a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a uh, misunderstanding. I guess is a, a gentle way to put it. That in Jonah we see them they appear to repent at the end, but here God is casting judgment upon them. And today I just want to play with that a little bit and help you see the difference between forbearance and salvation, because this is critical in how we live our Christian life. So if you do have uh, the book of Jonah there, hopefully it's in your Bible. Uh, it's two, two books before uh, Nahum, just uh, before Micah. So Jonah finally gets told to go to Nineveh and he gets there and he goes and he, he, he basically tells them to repent. And then the king of Nineveh and his nobles issue this decree he says, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, 
but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Sorry, this is chapter 3, verse 8. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And then it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he has threatened. See, many read this with the assumption that Nineveh was saved. It sounds like, okay, they've been saved. Yet the picture is actually that God prolonged his forbearance. See, and he does that throughout the world, throughout time. He is prolonging the punishment. He relented, we are told, but it doesn't say they were saved. See, and we know this because of Nahum. Uh, Having compassion and forbearance and turning away from destroying something immediately does not mean that they are saved. God may respond in that way, but they are not saved. See, I think Nineveh is a great representation of the difference between that delaying of punishment and being saved. Now, I want to give you an illustration from my own life at the moment. Um, uh, in my, I have a five-year-old and a six-year-old, as most of you know, and uh, right now we are going through a season of uh, a fight for control, we'll put it. So we have uh, a competing for control over everything. Control over space, control over what's eaten for dinner, control over absolutely everything. Uh, and they control, they, they, have a, they, they compete for attention, they compete in everything, whether it's kicking a ball, whether it's who can punch each other the hardest on a leg, uh, whatever it is, they are competing about everything. And most of the time, I need to try to figure out how I can stop one of them going to hospital. That's my job. My job as a parent is just to say, hey, how can I figure out that I don't have to spend the next four hours in a hospital emergency waiting room? And, um, and the way, uh, and, and how this comes about is that they'll often, they don't realise I've come in or they don't realise what's going on and I have to break it up. But sometimes one of them will do something and they know they've overstepped the mark. And suddenly they are aware that that guy that is in the house who has the uh, rule of punishment will probably come in at this weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth from the other one and deal with the one who did the wrong thing. And that hypothetical child uh, will then basically start trying to make it up before this hypothetical punisher walks into the room. So they'll do things like, let's say, example, boy one throws a toy of boy two. Doesn't seem to be a reason. Just decides, you know what? (laughs) This hypothetically happens. Okay, and it breaks. Now he knows what's going to happen. So he gets one of his toys and he goes, here you go. You break this and then we're okay. But it's always a toy that he doesn't value. It's always a toy that he doesn't care about. Or he'll say something like, okay, um, you can play with this toy for the rest of the day. Just trying to make it right before the punisher comes in. I, I, okay, I'm the punisher. Before I come in. 
uh, with my hypothetical frustration and anger. So the thing is, there's always this moment where they recognise what they've done, but they think they can make up for it. We'll just do a bit more. We'll just, oh, if I do this, then I've righted a wrong. And in a sense, that's how the world works. We do that often. We go eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, the Old Testament and the law was uh, trying to uh, instill some of that in. But I don't think that that's how God works. But this is what the king of Nineveh is doing. If you have a look in uh, Jonah there, chapter 3, he's going, he's going, well, let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Everyone call urgently on the Lord. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? He may relent. You see, they're not appealing for mercy. They're not appealing for anything, but let's do some good things. Let's do the right thing now and maybe we'll be okay. Let's somehow make it right with what we do. And I think this is how we're ingrained in our lives. And even uh, people outside of the Lord, you see them doing good things all the time. And why is that? Well, we call it common grace in theology, and that is because we're made in the image, and even though every part of us is affected by sin, we can still have the capacity to reflect God in the world, which is doing good. And that's why someone like Bill Gates, who, uh, who says the moral principles of Christianity are good, but uh, he won't identify as a Christian, that's why he's uh, saying he'll give away 95% of his 131 billion US dollars. That's a good thing to people in need. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has upped that and he's saying 99%. Uh, we've got wonderful organisations all around the world. Uh, in our communities, there's Rotary, there's Apex, there's the Lions Club. I've worked with all of those in other, uh, in other churches to put on carols and things like that. You see, why? Why is there good? Well, because you're still reflecting the image of God. But I also think the problem is that people may think that that is good enough when they come before that time where God says enough is enough. See, because a misunderstanding of sin will mean a misunderstanding of how we're made right with God. And I think Nineveh is a clear example of this. So the reason people not in Christ do good things they might not realise it, but it's because their conscience is bearing witness, as Romans says in chapter 1. And we have a conscience of what's right or wrong. And so it's all inbuilt in us, so none of us is without an excuse. But this idea of sin is at the core of this. We think it's like a dirt stain. If I oh, got one of these guys, I'd love to do this and get a dirt ball and just throw it at you. It's my kind of youth group and, and it hits you and you think, I've just got to wash it off. This is how the world thinks of sin. I've got a stain, or it's not even a stain, I've got this mud on my shirt, I've just got to wash it off and it'll come out in the wash. I've just got to do something to get rid of it. But the problem is much deeper than that. It's like when I go down the markets and buy myself a fluoro pink shirt, as we do as blokes, and we put it into, I haven't got a fluoro pink shirt, and as you put it into a washing machine with my white socks, you wash it, as blokes do, there you go, and, um, and every fibre of those socks is affected by that pink. And you know what, when you hold it up against other white things, you might not even see it. 
But when you buy a brand new pair of socks and you go, oh, I've been wearing pink socks. See, and that's really how we have to deal with sin. Recognise that it's a part of every part of our fibre of our being. It's not something you can just wash off. It's not something we can do to get rid of. And then when you hold ourselves up against not another tainted sock, but against the one that has no tainting, that is Jesus, we see ourselves as pink or black or whatever it might be uh, that highlights our sin. See, when we understand this fully, we understand what the problem with Nineveh is and what the problem with our humanity often is is we take control of ourselves. Red, the, the Red Cross's logo, have you noticed that? Their, their motto, the power of humanity. The power of humanity. They're a great organisation. They are doing phenomenal things throughout the world. I'm not dissing the Red Cross. But their foundation is the power of humanity. But God says, humanity cannot wash that away. Nineveh, you have sought the wrong thing. Just by turning and starting to do good things, this isn't scales. You need to deal with the crux of what the problem is. But the good news is that God knows this and he is a God of love and compassion. And if you have your Bibles, and just turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So not one person is without this. It's a problem we all have. But then he talks about a way of actually being pardoned for that stain to be cleansed. And he says in verse 24, and all are justified, that is made right with God. Uh, and all are justified, so made right with God, freely by his grace, by his free gift, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, the buying back of a, with a price that came by Christ Jesus. So with that, what that means is simply, and I know I've, I've told you this many times, is that, is that simply we need a substitute. We need someone who is worthy to take on the punishment for us when God says enough is enough, when God forecloses on our life, when we come before him and have to make an account. We can't say like Nineveh, let's do good now and then maybe we'll be okay. No, we need to come in repentance and faith. We need to lay down our life. We need to ask forgiveness and take the sacrifice of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection to life and make that our own. For that's the only way that we can be cleansed from the taint of sin. And that is the truth for everyone. See, Jesus became our substitute. He chose to take that punishment because of his great love for us. And because of that, we are set free from fear and death. We are set free. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says. Now, I know that I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Maybe I am today. And if that's the case, well, let me, 
let me encourage you not to delay, but to come to Christ for your salvation. Not so God's wrath will relent and you'll extend your forbear, his forbearance until the day of punishment, but that you are saved, that you take on Christ as yours. But if you are already in Christ, I think one of the big challenges we have as people of God is to live in Christ's love and not out of fear of him. We all have certain backgrounds which often lead to fearing authority and my biggest fear is that my, my boys grow up to fear me rather than to recognise that I love them because you have to, you know, I think every parent goes through this. You, you need to punish, but you need to also extend grace. And it's a hard balance for parents, and you often wonder that. But I think often, if we've come to Christ under this fear of hell or fear of his wrath, and we've said, I've, I'm a Christian because I fear the punishment, then sometimes we continue to live our life in the fear of the punishment, hoping that God will relent. And so we are driven by this fear and so all our good works, all the things we do, all the great, wonderful things that we do for the kingdom is so that we won't fall out of favour with God. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a complete misunderstanding. You may have brought, been brought into the kingdom by fear of hell, but you can't remain in that. You need to walk in love, in his love. Because here's the great truth that comes with all this, is that you can't fall out of favour with God once you are in favour. There is now no condemnation, past, present, future, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that we have been set free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. What is the slavery? By doing things out of fear. By living a legal life, a lawful life, simply because you fear the consequences. No, what comes first is your salvation and his love upon your life and you walk in that love, which means it's salvation first, good works that flow out of that, that have no bearing on your status in God's eyes. I think as a church we need to get this clear because this will affect how we treat each other. We won't look upon each other thinking they should be doing whatever. But as God walks with, uh, with, with forbearance, with patient endurance, we will patiently endure one another. We will exercise grace in our relationships. We will continue to walk in love with one another. Yes, this is the gospel, but it changes everything. And I just... I just want to commit to you uh, as we come out of COVID and we come out into a, you know, I think it will be a new season ahead. We must walk in the love of Christ, not out of the fear of God, uh, God's punishment. Yes, stand in awe of him. 
Yes, fear him in the sense of a father of love. But don't live your life and your Christian faith out of the fear of what he might do to you. And only then will you want to please him as your father and the one that has extended the great love to you. For God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that Nineveh draws us into the gospel. It shows us very clearly uh, that there is will be a time where you say that enough is enough. And Lord, while that will instill fear in all of us at some point, Lord, thank you that when we put our trust in Jesus, we move from that fear and we are in and bound by your love and nothing can separate us from God that is the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord and Father the fact that nothing can separate us from this love help us to drive on out of that love in that love uh, in order to uh, glorify you with our good works so Father God bless us now watch over us help us to enjoy this morning tea and lunch together and uh, walk with us in all that we do and we pray this in Jesus name Amen